Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. So good afternoon, everyone. I'm Alicia, and I'm a grateful recovering sex and love addict. And it's so great to see so many of you beautiful and amazing women on this uh, meeting right now from all over the place. And I feel like we are incredibly honored to recover from our sex and love addiction. And um, it really wasn't pretty when I got here. And I'm so grateful because today I feel like I'm better than most people at relationships. I think that when we work our program diligently and we work all the 12 steps and we develop our dating plans and do all these things that we become better at relationships. Like we're not always handicapped and our picker isn't (laughs) always broken. So I want to definitely share that ray of hope before I began, and um, I really want to say that I was uh, like born on a farm in Luther, Oklahoma, straight up, what is it, is it Interstate 40 that goes from Houston right up to Oklahoma, which interstate is that, <laughs> anyway, um, when I was five years old, we moved from Oklahoma City to, um, I mean, from Luther, Oklahoma to Oklahoma City. And we moved into a um, three-bedroom home. I had two older brothers who were 10 and 11 years older than I am. And um, I was five years old. And my parents had me sleeping with my brothers, at which point I was sexually molested by both of them. And so um, the first one, I went and told my parents, no, I don't want to sleep with him. And I didn't know how to say or what to say. I was scared. And they told me to sleep with the other one. And the other one molested me worse than the first one. And that part of the reason that that happened, um, in addition to just putting me straight in bed with them, is that the way my parents treated me was um, like allowing them to have disrespect for me. They were allowed to call me their slave. Like, slave, go get me a Dr. Pepper. Slave, go fix me a piece of toast. And I was expected to do that at five years old. And so I told my parents I didn't want to sleep with that brother either. And they had me sleep with them, at which point they had sexual relations while I was in bed with them. So no place was safe. It was just uh, like a horrific experience. And so I remember telling them, you know, like, I don't want to sleep with you either. And um, I was too afraid to sleep on the sofa because if I slept on the sofa, one of my brothers was really aggressive pursuing me and so um, they pulled the coffee table in from our living room put a sleeping bag on the coffee table and that's where I slept in their bedroom at the foot of the bed on a coffee table and so one of my brothers continued anytime we were at home alone he was very violent it was sexual assault and um, you know I was very afraid he would beat me up 
and uh, threatened that, you know, he would kill me if I told our mom and dad. And so um, the best thing that happened was that we were um, Seventh-day Adventists. And so um, that he went away to a, both of them went away to a boarding school. So when they reached a certain age, the, you know, they, they went away to this boarding school and that was when it stopped. And so as best I can guess, it was about a year that that happened. And so I learned that I was about as significant as the dirt on the floor. Like my mother was a rageaholic and she, you know, yelled and cussed and screamed and it was nothing for her to slap me across the face. And frequently she would, um, if, if I did, who knows what I did wrong because I was very much, um, a people pleasing little girl. So I was always doing what she wanted me to do. So who knows what really, uh, ticked her off and she would hold my head under a pillow and just beat the crap out of the rest of my body. And I just knew that she was going to kill me like many times when she had my head under that pillow beating me up, um, that she was going to kill me. And there was only one time when my father intervened and she had a belt and she had beat me into the corner. And at some point he finally said, now Rita, that's enough. And so I had years and years of undeserved loyalty to him for that day, the one time that he saved me from her. And so as a result of her abuse, and verbal, physical, emotional, spiritual, and then the sexual abuse of my brothers and the overt sexual abuse or covert sexual abuse of my parents, um, I just had no boundaries. You know, I just uh, felt like whatever guys wanted from me, they could have from me. I didn't know how, how valuable and how sacred my body is. I didn't know that. Nobody taught me that. <clears throat> and so I developed an eating disorder very early and uh, I was a compulsive eater and um, stuffed my feelings with food. And so I got very blessed because at the age of 19, I heard an uh, ad for Overeaters Anonymous and it said, if you can't quit feeding your face and you can't quit feeding out, call Overeaters Anonymous. And I really related to that. And so I went to my first OA meeting um, when I was 19 years old. And um, I felt like I was home. The 12 steps, like the 12 steps, like completely saved my life. And the 12 steps, you know, I was sitting in rooms with women who were, you know, three times my age. And we say frequently, we'll love you until you learn to love yourself. And they did. They loved me until I could learn to love myself. And they would say things to me like, you know, if we told you, you were a horrible person. And if we told you that, you know, you're not ever going to get this, you would believe us. But if we tell you how special you are, and how you're a gift from God and how we see God in you. And I was already crying. I was already crying when they were saying this. Like I couldn't take their love. Like I had been so emotionally and physically and sexually abused that I couldn't even take their love. So it took me a long time to be able to do that. And I got a sponsor. I was so blessed to get a sponsor who, uh, her sponsor was an AA circuit speaker priest, Larry Kay. Maybe you guys in, in Texas know him. 
um, who passed away a few years ago, but at that time, um, it was really an amazing experience because um, I had to go to tons of AA meetings because there weren't very many OA meetings in Oklahoma City at that time. <clears throat> and I just slowly but surely got healthier and healthier. And the biggest pivotal day for me was when I did my fifth step. Because when I did my fifth step, it was the first time that I ever told anybody about the sexual abuse. And it was really the first time I ever talked about the colossal epic abuse in my home to begin with, because it just wasn't okay to talk about it. You don't air your dirty laundry, you know, nobody cares. You're supposed to go to God with that anyway. And so um, I told her that, and that was the day where she said, it's not your fault. It wasn't your fault then, and it's not your fault now. And so that was one of those epic days when the, you know, the angels came down and sang the hallelujah chorus. Like, I really did feel this huge weight come off my shoulders. And so, you know, I still was getting my self-esteem back slowly but surely, little by little. And um, I, by that time, I had moved out and um, was living in a little tiny apartment. Um, for a while, I had become a mistress to a married man, and, you know, he bought me this really nice apartment, and, you know, um, I got to, like, feel like I was worth something because, you know, he made me feel like I was worth something. You know, it's really bad when qualifiers are making you feel like you're worth something, you know? So anyway, I was eventually able to get out of that, you know, kind of relationship as well. But I just had a series of, you know, bad relationships. I married a man who's 20 years older than I am. Um, great person, but um, he was definitely what we call emotionally unavailable. But I was emotionally unavailable too. Like, I had nothing to give. You know, I was in college, but if I wasn't in college and I wasn't at work, I was in OA meetings. I just was, I was not really present. I was trying to get my life back. And so eventually I divorced him. And uh, I didn't know it then, but I was marrying my flagship qualifier. So I swung from the one side of the spectrum all the way to the other side and, um, you know, left a man who, you know, we, we maybe had sex three times a month um, to somebody that was just a stark raging sex addict. And, um, but more than that, just like really narcissistic and really emotionally um, unavailable, but at the same time had no empathy for times where he would you know, hurt my feelings and we just didn't have any conversation around that. So it took a long time for me to be able to um, see that. I went to an SLAA meeting um, in California and all we had at that time were co-ed meetings. And so I went to that co-ed meeting and I thought, oh no, I'm not as sick as these people are. <laughs> and it was all about, you know, all I could hear, I couldn't really hear what the women were saying. All I could hear was the men talking about the porn and the men talking about the massage parlors and the men talking about that kind of stuff. And so I wasn't uh, ready to be able to, to stay. And so I had to go out for 14 more years and it was really my love addict that was the most flaming and just go through so many roller coaster romances and dating disasters and 
And finally, the one that was the coup de gras was a guy I met on eHarmony. And, you know, he told me he loved me before we even met. Like, that was awesome. I knew this was it. <laughs> you know, the more they could make me feel like they worshipped me and adored me and, you know, that I could have them wrapped around my finger, the more I knew it was going to work. <laughs> and I thought that enmeshment was it. You know, like, I had no idea that enmeshment was, you know, the worst thing. <clears throat> And so, um, but in the interim, I decided that what I, what was happening to me is that I was bearing the burden of my sexual, um, predators. And so I was ready to give all that back to them. So I went into a very specialized kind of therapy to be able to confront all of my perpetrators. And so, um, I had to be able to deal with it if they told me I was crazy, if they told me that I made it up, if they told me that I deserved it. Like it took months for us to go through and for me to be able to figure out how I was going to um, handle whatever they told me. And so it was wonderful. Eventually I called um, the brother who was the least of my perpetrators. And I said, do you remember doing this to me? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, I am very sorry. I would never want to hurt you. I love you very much. I hope you'll forgive me. It was like if I could have written out the script and <laughs> given it to him, he said it. And um, it, was, it was miraculous. I never dreamt that I could speak my truth and have it be so well received. So that was the first one. And then I eventually, it took me a couple of months to be prepared to call my worst perpetrator, who was uh, my older brother, who's now deceased. And um, I eventually called him and I said, do you remember doing this to me? And he said, no, I don't. But if I did, I would be very sorry. And Jesus is coming and you need to repent your sins. And I said, actually, I need to go. <laughs> so, so that ended that conversation. And, um, but I spoke my truth and I was really glad that I had spoken my truth. And then I called my mom a couple months later and I told my mom what happened, what both of my brothers did to me. And I said, and she was speechless. And I said, um, and this contributed to my compulsive eating disorder. And she said, Oh, I have got a great cabbage soup recipe for you, Alicia. And she literally started listing the ingredients. <laughs> and I said, no, mom, this is not the time to give me the recipe for your cabbage soup. But, you know, she had no clue what to say. She had no ability to say anything. So hung up from that. And then not long after that, I called my dad. And I told my dad, you know, this is what my brothers did to me and um he said damn those boys i'm gonna have a talk with them and mind you my dad has no backbone whatsoever he never had a talk with them but he at least had a little bit of a reaction <laughs> as opposed to telling me a recipe of some sort so i was in my master's program at pepperdine university at that time and I remember going to my class and sharing with some of the women that I had developed close relationships with and telling them that I had just just spoken my truth about the sexual abuse I experienced. 
and you know they're crying for me i mean i was i was jubilant actually but they're crying and it was just one of those experiences that you know not a lot of people have the opportunity to confront their perpetrators and i did and it was a, an amazing experience and about six months later um, there wasn't there wasn't uh, caller id at that time or cell phones and my phone rang one day And somebody was crying on the other end of the line. And it was my worst perpetrator, my oldest brother. And he eventually was able to talk. And he said, I do remember everything you said. And I am very sorry. And he was sobbing. And he said, and Jesus is coming. <laughs> and you need to repent your sins. <laughs> Thank you for calling. <laughs> Gotta go. And just, you know, I didn't want to take any more of the guilt or, you know, whatever, the religiosity. Like, but I knew that it was his a gift to him as well to accept his amends. And uh, he passed away from complications around diabetes hmm, maybe five or six years after that. And so um, I got to have the most amazing freedom and as i got that freedom i was able to reclaim the innocence that each member of my family took from me in one way or another i was able to acknowledge myself as a sacred gift of god and able to acknowledge myself as a powerful important woman and that i had the opportunity to speak my truth and so <clears throat> as, as momentous as all that was, I was still a stark raging love addict, especially. And uh, the credits didn't transfer. It still didn't matter that I was going to so many OA meetings and sponsoring, you know, most of the time I've sponsored 10 women in both programs. And so eventually when this guy from Calgary that I met from eHarmony, um, when we had a crash and burn weekend and, um, uh, San Francisco, um, he just had a completely different personality. Like he was this one personality over the phone and on email. He'd send me these long emails about himself and, um, we'd have these long conversations and I had eventually had to tell him, I said, I just can't keep up. I can't, I can't read all these emails and then send all these long drawn out emails back to you. And so, um, we met for his birthday in San Francisco, and it was just a disaster. It was a disaster from the minute we got in the taxi cab. And um, the reason it was a disaster is what I know now is that he was really a love avoidant. And so as long as we were over Skype or text or email, he could have all this, you know, flowery, generous stuff. But the minute we got in person, he like shut down. As a matter of fact, on his first trip when he came to California, I remember being in the car with him going, I really miss Neil. And like Neil was sitting right beside me. Well, I miss that other Neil, <laughs> that other Neil who was communicating with me before he got there. So now, you know, in hindsight, I understand a lot more of that. At the time, I just did it. And so um, he wasn't speaking to me. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the whole love languages thing. And mine definitely is words of affirmation. 
And uh, he wasn't talking to me unless we were sitting right across from each other over dinner. And so after that, every day when it was between breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I would just be in this horrible state of like feeling ugly, feeling stupid, and not getting my lava, my love, attention, validation, and approval. Like he wasn't giving me this lava from, that I needed to get outside myself to be remotely sane. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, eventually um, our, the weekend was over and we, um, so eventually the weekend was over and we went to the airport very early on that Tuesday morning, March 19th, 2012 at 6.45 a.m. <laughs> and, and I remember so clearly because he dropped me off at my Southwest gate at SFO and then he went to his Southwest gate and I was sitting there going, what the hell just happened? Like how, he told me he loved me before we ever met, you know? He had bought me a $3,000 diamond ring on his first trip to see me, promise ring. It wasn't an engagement ring, but it was a promise ring and he was adamant about it. What happened? And I really didn't know. But what I did know was that something was seriously wrong with me and I was gonna get back home and I was gonna go to that SLAA meeting and I didn't care if it was all men and just me, like I was going to sit there and like pull all this apart and figure it out and not, you know, not keep doing this over and over and over again. And so um, I was sitting there at the gate and my phone rang and it was him. And I thought, oh, hell no. I see right through this. Like he's going to do that thing he does again. He's going to reel me in. And I didn't answer it. And um, about that time, I was ready to, like, order some breakfast at one of those little outlets. So I go over to order my breakfast, and there's a trash can right there. And the janitor comes over to change the liner of the trash can. And the janitor looks up at me and goes, you sure look beautiful today. And that was just the lava I needed. <laughs> like, it was like I could feel myself go, oh, I'm a human again. <laughs> and oh, I'm attractive to somebody again. And anyway, I got back to Orange County and uh, got to my first meeting, the women's meeting, the next night. I sat in a room with 20 sex and love addicted women, and they all sang my song and said my story. And I really did feel like I'm home. I was home. And so if you're new or nearly new tonight, I really want to welcome you. I hope that you'll stay until you experience the miracles because the miracles are endless. And so um, it was tough for me to, to get a sponsor right away. But what I did that was so miraculous is I began working the steps and working the program exactly like my OA sponsor had taught me. Like I aimed to get to 90 meetings in 90 days, make two phone calls a day every day, plus her. So I made three phone calls a day. I just started calling and, you know, just started working it, just started doing, uh, reading the basic text. I started reading the withdrawal chapter and just being very aggressive because I knew my brain was completely steeped in sex and love addiction. 
And I knew that I had to saturate my brain in recovery. That that's what my sanity was going to be, was getting it, like transferring all of these uh, wirings over to a healthy brain. And this, it wasn't a popular term then, like it is now, but I put myself on lockdown. (laughs) I put myself on lockdown, which meant no contact with men. I hung out at Starbucks and, you know, I intrigued with every guy who came through the door. So I stopped going to Starbucks. I stopped um, doing anything that, that I could tell where I was getting lava, love, attention, validation, and approval. Anywhere I could see that I was doing that, I just stopped it. And the first 30 days of withdrawal were a bitch. I absolutely cried and cried and cried. And I saved every single one of those little tissues in a baggie, a big old baggie, because it was like my testimony. I am never going to do this again. Like, this is it. (laughs) And this bag that I had, I've since thrown it away. But this bag that I had, like... I couldn't believe I was crying for 30 days over a guy. Like that really hit me, like how bad my disease was, that that's what I was doing. So I dove into our steps and I knew I had to get rid of my shame and guilt. So I wrote a fourth step that was all about the shame and guilt of the different things that I did in my sex addiction. So remember we say that our best thinking gets us here? At some point, I thought my best thinking was that I wanted to have sex because I did figure out I am a sex addict. So I thought it was best for me to go to swingers clubs than for me to like have a date with a guy and have casual sex with him. Like I wasn't about to do that, but I would go to the swingers clubs. So that was on my four step, you know, just the guilt and the shame that I felt about that. And, um, you know, all the the different other things that I felt the most guilt and shame over. So when I'd gotten into the program, I started going to Saddleback Church, has a free psychotherapy division. And so I'd gotten a therapist there and I thought, okay, I'm going to do my fifth step with the therapist at Saddleback Church. (laughs) So I march in one day and I tell her I'm going to do my fifth step with her and I'm going to read all of this stuff to her and whatever we can get done in an hour. You know, I'll either come back next week or that'll be it. And it was comical now because she would make comments like, oh, that's not that bad. You shouldn't worry about that. (laughs) And of course I knew like, okay, what she says is irrelevant. What matters is that I am giving this to God. Like we've admitted to another, but we're admitting it to God. Like I'm giving this to God and I'm giving it to her. And I'm getting it off my chest. So, and it worked. You know, I've since done other fourth steps and fifth steps with other sponsors, but I knew I had to get rid of that guilt and shame. And to this day, when I work with sponsees, that's I kind of have them do okay, first get out all the guilt and shame and let's do a fifth step. And then you can dive into the rest of the fourth step because it just is so liberating to like say the worst, like right out of the gate and then go on. And so um, working and really seeing my character defects in relationship in step six and seven, and that uh, really that oversensitivity was I was able to really discover some of my worst triggers. And I was able to discover them when I worked step six and seven and determined that they were feeling 
insignificant, unimportant, disrespected, and unappreciated. Unappreciated. Like if I felt those things, then that's when this whole series of other character defects came out. That's when I would get bitchy. That's when I would get demanding. That's what I would get like overly controlling. Unimportant, insignificant, disrespected, and unappreciated. And those were all the things that are my core wounds. Those are all the things that are my family's family of origin um, key things that they constantly did. And so to really be able to heal those triggers, I uh, wrote a list of everything I wanted my mother to say to me. And it was things like, I love you so much. You're so important to me. I'm so grateful you're my daughter. You could never do anything to stop me from loving you. And I began to say those things to myself. So this lava, this love, attention, validation, and approval that I was seeking from others, I began to give myself that lava in a healthy way, like healthy love, attention, validation, and approval. Like I knew eventually that my problem was not a lack of intimacy with others, but a lack of intimacy with myself. And that when I could learn how to absolutely unequivocally love myself up, me and my frailties and me and my character defects, that I then was no longer looking to men to meet every single one of my unmet needs for a lifetime. (laughs) Like that was a tall order. What man? could meet every single one of my unmet needs for a lifetime. So then it meant I have to meet a lot of those unmet needs myself. And so I began that journey. And of course, SLAA is the only program I know of that talks about top lines. And our top lines are just as important as our bottom lines. Like when I work with sponsees and we set bottom lines, we set top lines. And those top lines are the way that we begin to have fun and enjoy life and the way we nurture and care and love ourselves. So those are really, really important. And uh, so that's six and seven and uh, eight and nine. One of my favorites amends was to call the man that I got so bent out of shape on because he texted me an apology. And I had to call this man and I had to say, Tim, this is Alicia. And I'm just calling you today to really apologize for the way our relationship ended. You know, I wasn't a lady and you didn't deserve um, the way I treated you. And I'm really sorry. And he was so funny. He goes, aw. He said, aw. Well, I wasn't really on my best behavior either. (laughs) And he goes, thank you. And I said, thank you so much. And I didn't even have in the back of my mind, you know, I didn't have that in the back of my mind. Well, maybe he'll say, let's go get coffee. Like, no, I didn't. It was just, this is it. I'm offering it up. And um, another one of my favorite amends was um, we had a big blow up here at our, you know, SLA. And, um, you know, I owed somebody an amends that from the co-ed meeting. And, um, but I wasn't going to be going back to the co-ed meeting where he was at. (laughs) And so I did all my work. I did 
all my writing. I was completely prepared. And I said to God, I said, I am ready to make this amends. You make it happen. And um, two, maybe three years later, I was sitting in a coffee shop in San Diego, randomly, like my girlfriend that I was getting ready to meet, she said, oh, the housekeeper's still here. So um, can you just hang out at Starbucks for a few minutes? And I'm sitting there and you guys, this man walks in and the peace came over me. Like I was prepared and I just, you know, he came over towards me and, um, you know, I said hello to him. He was with another program person that I know. And, um, and I just said, I'm really sorry for the harm I caused you. And he kind of looked at me like he couldn't remember. And, and anyway, he remembered fast enough, <laughs> but the beauty was you guys, anything is possible. Like anything is possible. The chances of me running into that man at that coffee shop. And so I just had the peace of God and I said my piece and I said it two or three times and I just said, I'm just going to sit here until I watch the car pull out of the parking lot. So they went over and got the coffee and I just said, just be still Alicia, just, he may have more to say to you. Like God help me take it. And he didn't, you know, he just kind of left and I said, just wait, just wait till, and anyway, it was just a miraculous experience. And um, to have the opportunity to make that men's amends was so powerful. And I hear those kind of stories all the time that we don't have to go search anybody down. God's going to bring them to us <laughs> in random situations. And um, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about sober dating. And um, sober dating is where I'm at now. And so I have the opportunity to act with dignity and grace. I respect my body and I expect to be with somebody who respects it too. It's not an option to um, treat me in a manner that doesn't look like love and care. Like what I believe today, now that my picker's pretty much restored, is that love looks like love, sounds like love, and feels like love. Like if it doesn't look like love, sound like love and feel like love, I'm out. And you know, all the weird things, there's five kinds of guys I don't date, cheaters, abusers, users, losers, and confusers. One more time, cheaters, <laughs> abusers, users, losers, and confusers. And so the reason that I say that is because those were the kind of guys I used to date. And as I get healthier and healthier in recovery, I'm not attracting cheaters, abusers, users, and losers anymore. But those confusers, I gotta tell ya, <laughs> you know, it's a little more difficult. You know, like if somebody's got their little shtick and it doesn't jam with my little shtick, that really gets confusing. And so today I have the ability to know how to break up because I have intentional autonomy. And intentional autonomy is where I am a whole, complete woman. I don't have a fragment hanging out waiting for a man to complete me. You know, I'm not looking for someone to give me my self-esteem today. Like, I am um, autonomous, and I am my own sovereign nation. I am whole and complete. And so part of what the program has given me is also divine dis discernment, divine discernment. And so that's the ability to see when someone is one of those cheaters, users, losers, 
abusers or confusers. Like I can see that and I no longer live in a fantasy world. You know, the fantasy world was whatever I wanted the guy to be, I made him up to be. That is the magical thinking that we talk about. And then, you know, when they didn't live up to what I thought they were, then, you know, I would plummet into this utter despair. <clears throat> and so um, around sexuality, um, I've had five healthy relationships. I've had five healthy breakups. I didn't do anything and go sideways and cause a scene. <laughs> I'm kind of a no drama girl now. Like if it causes drama, I avoid it like the plague. So that means I get to act with dignity and I get to act with respect. I practice what I call the Hippocratic Oath of Dating. And the Hi Hippocratic Oath is above all else, do no harm to yourself or others. Well, in medicine, the Hippocratic Oath is above all else, do no harm. But I take it that above all else, I do no harm to myself or others in dating. And so that's dating with integrity and dating like I would want somebody to treat me, like I get to date like that. And so each of those breakups have been sober. Um, in my first sober dating, I had to set a new bottom line. Turns out he was a periodic alcoholic. And so he would have these horrific arguments with me and he would look at me with contempt. I won't ever be with somebody who looks at me with contempt you look at what contempt looks like is like you just caught somebody in bed with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, like that. When you look at somebody with that look, <clears throat> that's contempt. And I never did anything to deserve that. And so I won't have that. So, but anyway, he was right in my face and he's yelling at me and I'm right in his face and I'm yelling right back at him. <laughs> and I got to tell you, the next day I thought, wow, I have a heavy emotional hangover this doesn't feel like what sobriety needs to feel like for me. Like it's sexual sobriety and emotional sobriety in our program. Like we're really working to keep this emotional sobriety. And so I set a new bottom line and that was no emotional outbursts. And I'm very grateful that, um, you know, I've been off of that bottom line since that day as well. And so what that does is it gives me the ability to be a respectable woman in a relationship. Like I'm not going to start yelling and acting a fool. I can have those feelings, but I've had to really polish my own advanced communication skills. And then I want to definitely touch on service work and sponsorship. Like the opportunity to share what God and this program have so generously given me is truly the highest honor. And um, I, have, I love sponsoring and I'm grateful to be able to sponsor some amazing women and to share with so many women. Um, and since COVID has happened, you know, Zoom has been our life. And, and um, I was, uh, the Orange County group had a live speaker meeting and um, we started it a couple of years ago and um, it would alternate between a man would speak for 45 minutes one month and the next month a woman. So you'd have to wait a whole month until the next speaker. And it was an amazing experience. I was like the third person that they had speak and I loved it every single time. 
And then once COVID began, I'm not sure what happened, but two months in a row, we had a male speaker. And I remember sitting there going like, damn, I wanted to hear a woman speaker. And I thought, you know, I've always wanted to make a difference for women around the world. And that night was when I had the idea to start the international women speaker meeting that's on Saturday mornings or Saturday afternoons, your time. And so it's been such an amazing experience to give back on a global level and to be on that meeting and to see women from around the world, women who live in tiny little towns that there wouldn't be a meeting for them for miles and miles and miles. And then to, you know, have our, you know, WhatsApp group that is really supportive of each other in the meantime and just like really staying connected and making certain that um you know what is it where no one's left behind like you know it's so easy to feel like you're alone in this disease and then the other thing i want to be sure and share about is i'm a single parent i left that flagship qualifier when my son was only 11 months old and my commitment to Kenny, is his name, <clears throat> was that I wanted to have a great relationship with Kenny every day of my life and every day of his life. I didn't have the tools to do that. My mother was a rageaholic, a bully. It was being raised in a war zone. And my dad, on the other hand, was just as passive as could be. But I got to this program when Kenny was 12 years old. And this program really gave me the skills and the tools and the ability to have an amazing relationship with him. And so just today, um, you know, now that he's, he's in college and uh, he's having school at home, so I'm actually getting to see him a little bit more. And um, we were sharing just some of the things that he and I are both going through together. And I was just sitting there as I came into my bedroom, because normally I'm in my living room unless he's home. And um, like just thinking of the miracle, like it's a miracle that that dream is really gonna come true. And I know that many of you are parents and those precious souls that God has entrusted to us you know, I was going to mess that up so big and bad if it hadn't been for this program. And I also discovered Parents Al-Anon meetings, and the combination of the two has just been phenomenal. And so um, today, what I get to look at is I am lost my work, my, lost my job on March the 1st, and um, I've been in a lovely home that I could possibly be evicted from. I will have to involuntarily move. Um, I know that God has me in the palm of its hand and that I will be completely taken care of. Like my faith is so big and every single day I live one day at a time. Like if I get out of today, like what's going to happen if I start worrying about what's going to happen, then I'm in utter fear and I would be paralyzed and not experiencing today. But um, we're making history right now. We all are. You know, these are unprecedented times. And that's not just a, you know, kind of a cliche thing to say. These truly are unprecedented times. And the skills, talents and abilities that the program give us are what help us to be able to make it through anything. 
to truly deal with life on life's terms. And this is the advanced course. Many, many of us have lost our work and, um, and the ability to really flourish. It looks like to really flourish. But at the same time, what I'm knowing is true is that I just get to flourish in different ways and that I get to give myself permission to be happy no matter what. You know, not far from my house is the Irvine City Hall. And when we were experiencing civil unrest around the world, um, I could hear the, the rioting. And I thought, you know, I get to be happy no matter what's going on. I'm sad about all those things, absolutely. And I am, I am right there with all the things that need to happen in our world. But no matter what, I get the right to be happy today, no matter what. Like, I don't have to drag myself into a state of despair, um, even just because that's going on in certain places. So I thank you all so much for being here today. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. Thank you. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.